Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Building Sustainability. Uh, I am Jeffrey Hart. And I'm Joe Derwin. Oh, Joe's here. Hi there. Uh, so finally, my uh, partner in crime, uh, Joseph Derwin, is is with us. Same uh, place, same time. Yeah. Coming at you live from Southwold. <laughs> and yeah, so uh, the the plan has always been for you to... Yeah. Join in. Definitely. I've been looking forward to it. So, um, so it's a good opportunity to yeah. get it started. And uh, it's good because Hartwin, so me and Joe, are now on site in Southwold. We are prep prepping yeah. for, for the big summer build. Um, where are we up to so far? So, yeah. So first week, we've got some lovely holes dug by a local Gramworks crew. Uh, which has been great. They've done a fantastic job, and uh, the neatest holes I've ever seen. Super square and flat and lovely. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a joy to fill them with limecrete. Pretty incredible. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to that. And we've been running around like idiots trying to set up uh, an office and a marquee and toilets and showers and order vast quantities of screws <laughs> and other things. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, and students arrive. On Friday, Saturday. Friday and Saturday. Friday and Saturday, yeah. Yeah. So they're going to arrive and they're here for 16 weeks and uh, they're going to build two straw bale workshops. Yeah. Lots of super exciting natural building techniques. Yeah. Straw bale, walls, earth plasters, earth floor. Yeah, roundwood timber framing, stick framing, yeah. natural insulations. Traditional heritage oak framing. Indeed. Mm. Lime plaster, clay plaster, yeah. lime wash, natural finishes. So this month's guest is Judith Thornton. Uh, Judith is working as a researcher at Aberystwyth University. Um, she researches growing plant-based insulation. And she talks a little bit about what she does and what they do as as a sort of department yeah. in this in this podcast she talks a little bit about uh the use of miscanthus yes an excellent grass an excellent grass yeah, yeah. um so her her focus is on part... I suppose it's finding the the kind of the most appropriate material to be used in any given environment, isn't mm. it? So it's not saying that at the moment we look at straw as being a very kind of ubiquitous material. And while it's been a very good starting point, she's looking at it more as a, a kicking off point and we can take some of the values that we find in straw and see what we can find in other materials and see whether they're more appropriate to use them in different locations and yeah, see if and, they can be more environmentally friendly as well. And also looking at designing, you know, straw is a, a byproduct and actually looking at growing things for use as a an insulation so like um, a, as a cash crop for for yeah. insulation or structure of the exactly, of the building yeah. and yeah looking at ways that we can integrate that so it's a, a beneficial cycle rather than something that depletes the environment so uh, uh, what they called a perennial is it mm, rather perennial. than an annual crop um really interesting stuff so I went down to Aberystwyth University to meet Judith and uh, she gave me a tour of 
their facilities there. And she took me to the most incredible greenhouse. That, yeah, I'm very that, jealous. <laughs> so to briefly describe it, it was it's all super controlled temperature, sunlight, um, humidity and all that, that kind of thing. But it's just a series of uh, conveyor belts. And they can have hundreds and hundreds of plants all in individual pots, all with a little barcode. Yeah. And then once a day or however long they, they deem it, you know, each each plant gets sort of rolled out individually, gets weighed, gets a set amount of water, Amazing. then gets taken into a little photo booth where it gets photos taken <laughs> from you know, multiple different angles. And then it gets wheeled back on its conveyor belt back to the back of the queue right. uh, with all the other specimens. Um, yeah, it's all automated and it's, yeah, they've got loads of different crops. I'll put some, uh, some pictures up of the, the photos I took when I was there. Right. They've, they've got, yeah, just hundreds of different things. They're growing different species and they're also growing different things with different amounts of water. See if they're drought tolerant or see if they're you know, flood tolerant. Brilliant. Or... It's so it's like a cross between like Willy Wonka and Yo Sushi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and <laughs> and uh, with Triffitts, that's it. Sounds amazing. It's great. Um, what else to say about this episode? Oh, there is. Um, you'll probably notice that uh, about two thirds of the way through, uh, we had to change a room. So there's a little bit of a, a change in ambiance. Oh. Uh, so just in case you're uh, <laughs> unnerved by that. Uh, acoustic wizardry has not quite flattened it out no oh well uh, I, I heard there was um a small amount of jeffrey schooling <laughs> thanks joe <laughs> uh yeah well it's good to, to preload that uh judith um she challenged me on a few of my my sort of preconceived ideas yeah. and it's it's really valuable um you're actually going to listen to this for the first time aren't you yes and then we'll uh we'll do the outro and you can let me know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, but without further ado, uh, enjoy the podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. 
So, Dr. Judith Thornton, I, I, read, I was looking at your uh, your slides from the SBUK. Oh, okay. Big Strawberry Gathering. Yes. And I, I clocked the doctor, so I was. Yeah. Afraid. Doctor in something quite irrelevant, unfortunately. <laughs> what what are you okay. a doctor in? Uh, how the brain controls breathing during exercise. Right. Yes. So that's very relevant to what you're doing now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Not very relevant at all. Uh, yeah, no, I've had quite a, a short attention span, I think, <laughs> and uh, flicked through uh, various different careers. But yes, doing a PhD was a really interesting experience in the sense of the level of detail and precision that goes into getting good answers to questions right because it's relatively easy to ask a question but it can easily take you five years to find out a proper answer uh-huh. um, and that's one of the i think that, that that's one of the difficulties of how uh businesses and you know end users of research results how they um how how to help them interact with the universities? Mm-hmm. You know, you ask a you, you ask a university academic a question, and they'll come back ten years later with an answer. But <laughs> you know, you ask a you ask a building consultancy firm a question, and they know that you need an answer in three weeks' time. Yeah. Um, so they are very dependent on the literature that's been generated by by university research. Right. So five years before. Yes. Yes. And I suppose. Well, would it be right to assume that actually having a your doctorate mm-hmm. in you know, it it's taught you how to do the yeah do the process yes the process of scientific discovery. Um, I mean, I suppose the interesting thing about the process of scientific discovery is you're in statistical terms you're you're wrong until you prove yourself yeah. otherwise which is quite an interesting mindset to start with because everybody's like, I've got a wonderful idea, but your starting point has to be that your idea is rubbish (laughs) and no better than anything else, which is quite a weird starting place because it's not your, you know, it's not your natural inclination. You know, like we were having a look at some uh, some plant material earlier and you're like, this looks amazing. And I'm like, no, it's awful until we've proved it's better (laughs) than anything else. We're wrong. This is the worst material known to mankind. <laughs> um, so uh, does, has that trained you to be a pessimist then? Uh, yeah, which is which is really rubbish because I don't I don't like being a cynical person, but um, I think I think you have to be in a way to yeah. be good at science. Um, well, you can quite easily sort of taint and lead your results if it, if you're going the other way. Yes, very much so, very much so. And I think, um, and I think that's one of the things I find quite interesting about people who work with natural materials mm. is there's a few, certainly sort of quite a few people that work with natural materials who have got a material of choice yeah. and they like that material and you ask them why and it's a very... It's a very, it's a very sort of complex and internal reason why. I mean, people that like building with hemp, for example, mm-hmm. that's a classic. You ask them, have they ever tried any other material? 
and they look at you as if you're entirely mad. You know, it's like somebody's been using the same, I don't know, eating the same breakfast cereal every day for the last 50 years yeah. and has never tried a different breakfast cereal um, and wouldn't, it, it just seems, it just seems a little bit odd that we're not more uh, technology neutral. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Trying to get the, the right material for the right reaction, the right, performance yeah that's it i mean the thing is it's like you know we breed particular plants here in in this department um you know we do a lot of oats uh we do a lot of miscanthus we do a lot of forage grasses and you know some of my colleagues would dearly love you know miscanthus to be the answer to everything but Mm -hmm. it's not you know uh, to me all i want the natural building materials uh, industry to understand is that there are lots of different plants available and they have different properties and let's have a conversation about what particular properties you're looking for yeah and then we might be able to find you a plant that that has those properties um and you know it might and it might be that it doesn't make that much difference uh which plant you're using in some applications and there'll be other applications where it makes an enormous difference. So yeah. for, particularly if you're looking at biodegradation. So, you know, how how liable is your straw type material to rot? Yeah. Uh, if you have accidental moisture ingress, mm-hmm. for example. Um, Mark's difference between different, different straw species um, and also quite likely, although we've not demonstrated it in a convincing manner yet between different varieties of the same straw. So wheat A versus wheat B, mm-hmm. um, you look at their physical characteristics and they're quite different in terms of their stem thickness and their stem strength. Yeah. Um, and wheat breeding has conventionally been about, you know, those grains on the top and the value of that. But along the way, they've acquired a whole load of data on the thing that stops that wheat head from hitting the ground. Yeah. You know, they want their stems to be tough. So having a look through some of those back catalogues of varieties, which have got particular good stem properties is, you know, it's a relatively simple exercise to do, which would be of interest to people that build with straw. Hmm. So you have that, that, uh, data. Yeah, so, so that that back catalogue exists. Um, the 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 extent to which the properties that get measured relate to something that's useful in a straw bale wall mm-hmm. is is slightly slightly difficult to determine. Yeah, so you're um, not measuring like the U value of the the stem. No, um, so because because that's not the the relevant yeah, bit to sure. the you know to the farmer that's that's growing the wheat. But uh, there's stuff on stem diameter. There's stuff on height. Uh, there's stuff on lodging resistance. So the the likelihood that the plant is going to fall over on a windy windy day. You know, you, you see arable fields with whole patches of of crop that's just fallen over, right. for example. And then that means, you know, the reason the farmer's interested in that is that means the, the head of the plant is is on the ground and is rotting and is is not fit. Yeah, anymore. no good. So, so these properties have been measured. Uh, and then it's a question of saying, well, let's take ones that look particularly good on those properties and design a test that mimics uh, biodegradation in a straw bale wall. Mm-hmm. 
to see if actually that that property of stem thickness and resilience is does actually relate to then how well it breaks down. If we go back a step, so the the question I'm always asked when I'm demonstrating straw or talking about straw is when it rocked. Um, and the sort of stock answer, I guess, is that uh, it needs moisture content and it needs, well, it needs moisture content so it will break down. Um, and therefore, you know, care is taken when it's baled, how it's stored, how it's installed. To Yes. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's entirely sensible. So fungi, you know, you're, there are, there are different approaches to it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you could start with a sterile material. Yeah. So you could start with a straw that had no fungal spores in it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, as in it's been sterilised? Yes. Yeah. And and uh, that is a complete anathema to lots of people who work with straw. But mm-hmm. it's effectively what you do if you buy... Uh, cellulose insulation that's mm-hmm. been treated with borate because yep. you don't want it full of insects and you don't want it catching fire so we do have natural materials that get treated in a way to uh stop their breakdown yeah um i'm not saying we should do that with straw i'm simply saying that is you know that is a way of stopping buildings rotting mm-hmm. is making sure there is no microbial activity yeah in in that straw I mean that's that's at time of install then yes you, know, you can't really yes. control it from there on in, yeah I mean effectively that's what you do with hemp lime because the lime yeah. kills anything that would grow in the uh, in the hemp lime mix mm-hmm. uh, but yeah you're right the the main the main way of stopping straw rotting is to uh, stop the moisture getting in mm-hmm. yeah so. Um, is there cases where where buildings, so straw buildings, have been been rotting? Yes. So there are plenty of straw bale. I mean, if you keep the material dry, it mm-hmm. doesn't rot. Yeah. And and that's and that's fine. And that's that's mostly about really good construction details. Yeah. Um, so that's and. You know, I think within the straw bale industry, that's pretty variable, and that's partly relates to the sort of the self build ethos. I think it partly relates to the strange sort of lack of design details that often uh, get used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there seems to be this assumption that the drawings you you use to get planning permission are then what you use to build a building with. Uh-huh. Well, no, hang on a minute. There's an enormous phase of drawings in between those planning permission drawings and you actually arriving on site with all of the details in and those details are the bits that stop moisture getting in. Yeah. You know, how do you wrap that membrane around that timber post? How do you how do you make sure that the gap between the clay plaster and the timber upright isn't actually uh, a source of moisture moving through the building? Yeah. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Um and I think one of the reasons that buildings get some of these buildings get built quite badly uh, is because those details never exist. So people mm-hmm. are having to make it up as they go along on site, which is an incredibly difficult thing for people to do. Yes, certainly. I mean, self-builders generally are not, uh, strangely, are not actually people that work in construction. Yeah, and they are the least able to work it out as they go along. Mm. But they are the sector that is most likely to have to because they haven't 
you know, they haven't spent that extra money on getting detailed drawings before they start their construction. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, you know, poor construction details are uh, something that the straw industry has to accept happens and therefore you do get some moisture ingress. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, 10 years post-construction, there's also, you know, just random stuff like, your gutter gets blocked and there's there's water cascading down the wall for a week or two yeah. until you can get up there to unblock the gutter. So I think we have to accept that there will be, you know, even with the best quality construction, there will be some moisture that gets into walls. Yeah. Uh, and then it's a question of how how likely that material is to, to biodegrade. And there are distinct differences between straws in their biodegradability. Yes, so um, you showed a, a, gra- a, a table at uh, the Big Straw Bell Gathering, which was of, I think, the different wheat varieties. And, yeah. You know, so even within just wheat, there's a huge variation. Yes. Um, there's So there's enormous differences between, you know, 40 whatever different varieties of wheat that are available. Um, and then there's... Also, the complication of it depends to an extent on where that plant is grown. So a genetically identical plant grown in uh, Wales will look different to the plant that's grown in East Anglia. Right. So that complicates the situation further. Um, But... I mean, I think broadly speaking, you'd say that there are certain species that are less likely to rot. Yeah. Uh, and that there's some overlap depending on between those bands of degradability according to where it's being grown. Mm-hmm. But um, there are probably some fairly simple rules that will emerge. And it, it's never been studied properly in relation to straw bale buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been studied quite a lot in relation to when you plough straw back into soil right? Uh, to return the nutrients to the soil. So how quickly it breaks down. Yeah, so it's been studied into how quickly it breaks down in the soil. Um, it's also been studied in relation to um, the suitability of straw for bioethanol production. Mm-hmm. So how easy is it to break down the straw to get the sugars out yeah. to create biofuels? So we've got we've got hints from those types of experiments mm-hmm. about what types of straw are likely to be more resistant to degradation. And presumably the farmer will know what exactly what type of wheat they're growing. Yeah, so this I mean this was really fascinating to me. The farmer knows what variety of wheat they're growing. Mm-hmm. But you go to the big straw bale gathering and you ask a room full of straw bale builders what varieties of wheat they've used. And there was not a single person mm-hmm. in that entire conference who knew what variety they had of wheat they had used on any building ever. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I just think that's so interesting. There's complete, there's this complete sort of, it's a different world that people are moving in. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the idea, I mean, it's a really basic idea that barley is much more prone to rotting than wheat. Yeah. You ask any farmer that's grown barley and wheat, and they're like, oh, yeah, we must get the barley, field, the barley straw straight off the field. If it's raining, it's, it's rotten. We, you know, it won't be worth anything. Um, and it's, it's really important that we get this off the field really quick. Yeah. 
you know, a five minute conversation with a, with an arable farmer, you, you'd learn that piece of information. But for some reason, that isn't isn't a piece of information that's widely known within within the straw bale industry. I wonder if that's um, just uh, well, because we believe in you know the big overhang, the the good boots and the good hat. Absolutely. That, that therefore, yes. you know, it, it's not necessary. We've we've dealt with it. Uh, yes, and I think and I think that's that's true. If we live in an ideal world mm. where all our construction details are perfect, yeah, um, and freak accidents don't happen, and freak accidents don't <laughs> happen. Um, I guess my concern, even with you know supposedly excellent straw bale construction details is that the idea of creating airtight buildings yeah. is not popular within uh, sort of the natural building industry. And I find that really interesting because obviously if you've got uncontrolled air movement through uh, you know, where your uh, light fitting goes into your wall or where your extractor vent goes in or between your clay plaster and your timber upright, mm-hmm. anywhere you've got air movement, you've got... Uh, moisture in that air which may then condense as it moves through the wall mm-hmm. so unless you have uh you know an airtight membrane on your natural building material you are expecting significant amounts of water to pass through your building fabric are you when you say membrane are you talking do you count the the plaster skin as a membrane uh, yes so and uh, sorry okay. so when i say membrane i mean airtight layer Yes. So when you when you look at a design detail, where is your airtight layer? So, mm-hmm. for example, you can get um, how how would you do an airtight junction between clay plaster and a timber upright that you were plastering against? Well, there is actually a tape that does yep. that. It's you know half the width is plastering mesh, half of it's airtightness tape, and you just tape it up the timber. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not widely used. And, and it's okay if your airtightness layer was somewhere else. So mm-hmm. if you've got, uh, let's say you've got um, uh, plyboard or something and yeah. that's taped, that's fine. You you don't need your clay plaster to, to timber junction to be airtight because that wasn't where your airtightness layer was. Yeah. Um, but if you don't have an airtightness layer, you're running really quite significant risks of moisture getting into materials which mm. are we know are prone to degradation i suppose our so from you know Hartwoodens, our kind of viewpoint is on the longevity of tapes how long is it going to be before the stickiness breaks down and actually your tape isn't performing anymore um yeah and also just adding another probably petrochemical into into the building is is a problem for I know a lot of people. Yeah, I mean I find I mean I think the petrochemical argument is I have to say just innumerate. Right. You know, I think if you look at the amount of carbon sequestration in a uh, straw bale building, mm-hmm. let's say uh, you've got so I mean the the best data available says fifteen tons right of CO two stored in that building now. Most individuals in the UK have got an annual CO2 emissions of about 10 tonnes. Right. So storing 15 tonnes in a 2.5 person household for 50 years is not a very large number. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, 
compared to what somebody is using on an annual basis. Sure, yeah. So to add a couple of kilos of CO2 by using an air tightness tape, but it might extend the lifetime of your building by 20 years, Mm -hmm. is, you know, just some of these... And I've heard people saying the same stuff about, oh, we should be using sisal twine instead of polypropylene baling string. I'm like... Mm -hmm. Why did you turn up on site in a vehicle today if you were interested in any anything to do with petrochemicals? Yeah. Um, I think we're... If you have a philosophical dislike of petrochemicals, that's, that's fine. Um, I think... But to pretend... To, to make out that it's, it's sort of part of the environmental equation... Yeah. ...is, I think... Uh, it's just simply wrong. Yeah, I don't mind if people don't, you know, if you don't want an airtight building or you don't want to use a membrane or an airtightness tape for some emotional reason, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. But I mm-hmm. think it's when we when we make sort of false claims about why we're not using a particular material. Sure. I just kind of, I get annoyed with it. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, for me personally, one of the, the things I love about natural homes certainly uh clay plastered ones is that you know they're they're doing so much for the indoor air quality um and therefore to to add in something that's potentially off gassing or, or so i find this really interesting because we've got an inherent assumption here that natural materials are safe mm. and man-made materials are dangerous yeah and that's i, I don't i don't understand where that comes from because if you I did this once when I was giving a lecture to a, a bunch of students. I said, let's just write down on the board all the things that anyone in the room is allergic to. Yeah. And we had dust, we had pollen, we had cats, dogs, penicillin, you know, all sorts of stuff. Everything on the list was a natural thing. Yeah. What people what people are allergic to are natural materials. And and yet we have this this fear of chemicals. We've got this in, we've got this really strong fear of formaldehyde, for example. Now, formaldehyde is actually a natural breakdown product in your body. Yeah. You know, it's part of a standard biochemical pathway. Um, and, yeah, there are plenty of man-made materials that are likely to have bad effects on indoor air quality. But, the you know, the biggest risks to indoor air quality in the UK are cold and damp and mould. Yeah. Mould is the most dangerous thing on indoor air quality mm-hmm. um so to be you know to be worried about off gassing of a you know off gassing of a plastic light fitting or an air tightness membrane and you, you've got a wall that's completely full of mold spores <laughs> you know you've got a wall that's <laughs> yeah. full of mold spores and if you're building rots uh, those and it's not airtight because you didn't want your petrochemical membrane mm-hmm. you know that little bit of tape between the plaster and the and the timber all of those multiples are going to come in and kill you. It's all completely natural. You'll die of natural causes. <laughs> Sorry. I just I just find this, you know, natural is safe, man-made is dangerous thing really interesting. Yeah. As a philosophy. No, definitely. It's it's good to be um challenged on it. It's because it is definitely a, an assumption. Yeah. Um We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. 
We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, uh, and you know, that's fine. You want to build and you want to live in a natural materials house because you prefer natural materials. That's that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the risks of saying that natural things are safe mean that, you know, you get these issues, for example, with with molds or you know, musty smells in buildings. Yeah. Um, or, you know, timber. Absolute classic. You know, people working people sawing up chunks of timber need to wear masks because yes. wood is highly wood dust is highly carcinogenic you know it's but we we want to think that that natural materials are are safe mm. and we're putting ourselves at risk just from having having that assumption to start with yes well, i think there's um there's quite a lot of knowledge now that you know the extraction is I think it's in the the coming years it's going to be mandatory to have all sorts of very very uh you know, efficient dust extraction for for tools for cutting wood yes. For, yeah. yes it's already the case in a sort of workshop environment I think yes going out onto the building site even yeah you know, when it's fresh air around you and I think that's that's going to be a big change coming yeah well I mean anything you can breathe in is mm. uh potentially quite dangerous because your lungs are a you know, your lungs are a very, very sensitive layer. You know, they're designed to let stuff move into and out of your body. Yeah. Um, so that is anything that can get deep into your lungs, whether it's natural or man-made, is, yeah, potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. So earlier we did a, a little tour of the, the facilities here. and there's, Yeah. Um, well, do you, would you like to, to describe what, what goes on in this this department? This department, yeah. So... Um, Institute of Biological, Environmental and Rural Sciences at Aberystwyth University. And it's gone through uh, various iterations over the year, but years, but the starting point was the Welsh Plant Breeding Station that mm-hmm. got set up in 1919. Uh, and that was largely about uh, growing grasses for agriculture to feed animals. Right. Um, so this place has been breeding plants for 100 years. It's our, it's a 100... 100th anniversary this year and congratulations thank you <laughs> happy birthday to Ibis yeah um and I think the thing that I find really interesting about plant breeding is what we're basically doing is domesticating domesticating plants and uh taking this enormous and amazing diversity that nature has provided us and trying to make things better or more suitable for particular purposes yeah. so uh, so a lot of the facilities we, we saw on a little walk around this morning were related to breeding. And one of those is the uh, National Plant Phenomics uh, Centre, which uh, is, uh, as you saw, the most astonishing space-age <laughs> greenhouse it's incredible. imaginable. Um, and basically, it's a plant beauty contest. Mm-hmm. There are uh, It has a whole load of cameras and each plant can have its photograph taken from multiple different angles uh, every day of its life Uh, and that allows you to look at things like uh, the overall plant biomass so if you're interested in 
the you know the overall leaf area because that's the bit that gets eaten. Yeah. That's what you'd be interested in. Uh, it allows you to uh, look at the uh, shape of uh, seeds on plants, for mm-hmm. example. Um, it, we have the capacity to change the amount of water that the plant gets, so you can look at how it responds to drought. Uh, there's a separate facility in there for looking at plant roots, mm-hmm. um, so you can look at uh, how well the plant responds to drought uh, and also whether it can help mitigate flooding. So so we do lots of work on how to make plants uh yeah, what's your ideal plant? You know, what, if you had a list of design criteria, what would you want your forage grass to look like, or mm-hmm. your or your biomass plant to look like? Um, some of the other facilities we had a little look at were the beacon facility for biorefining. So the idea of the beacon project is to help uh, Welsh businesses with their research and development needs in relation to turning plants into products. Right. So, you know, we used to have a plant-based economy and then we had this amazing fossil fuel economy that we're in at the moment. And because of climate change and peak oil and limitations on natural resources, we are going to have to go back to having a plant-based economy. But we're not going back, we're going forwards. We've done a whole load of science Mm -hmm. and the future plant-based economy can look very different to the past. So we are interested in turning plants into all sorts of products. Mm -hmm. So that might be bioplastics, that might be building materials. Uh, We do quite a lot of work in there on um, creating better food products. uh, We are also looking at getting pharmaceuticals out of plants. Mm -hmm. Because obviously most pharmaceuticals came from plants originally you say obviously uh, yeah so i mean you know, all this natural remedy stuff uh-huh uh, and then actually so aspirin for example yeah that's that's a naturally occurring compound uh, and scientists have conventionally sort of taken their inspiration from nature uh-huh. and then learned how to synthetically derive that that compound um, we're now in the position to be able to uh, screen plants, so get a complete list of all of the different chemicals that are in a plant mm-hmm. and say, oh, you know what, that one that one actually is really effective against Alzheimer's disease. Um, how can we get this out of the plant? And then it becomes an exercise in smashing, squishing, juicing, <laughs> filtering, mincing, concentrating evaporating to get your you know your pharmaceutical compound out yeah. of your plant uh we do quite a lot of work in there with food companies so um trying to extract particular flavors mm-hmm. so for example we've been doing a project where we are trying to get the umami flavor yeah. out of a a, a waste liquid Okay, a waste liquid. Yeah, so a waste liquid from uh, producing another food product. Right, I see. Which is going down in the drain at the moment, Mm -hmm. but uh, has got fairly low concentrations of a compound that causes this umami taste. Right. And the company that are doing this uh, with us, they are interested in reducing the salt content of food. Mm -hmm. But one of the problems is if, if you take salt out of food, it doesn't taste so nice. 
So you need to put this umami taste in mm -hmm. to improve the taste. And conventionally, that's been done with monosodium glutamate. Yeah. People aren't keen on that. So to be able to have a, a natural flavor that creates this umami taste that this company has produced from their waste liquid, but they can put into their food products, that's... Yeah, that's the kind of that's just an example of the kind of work we do in in Beacon. Uh -huh. So you've recently done a project with Miscanthus. Yes. So we've um, so this place has been breeding grass since 1919, mm -hmm. and in the early 2000s, uh, Defra came to us and said, uh, "We need biomass crops for uh, North Europe, UK and Northern Europe. What do you suggest?" And our plant breeders said, well, there's this really nice plant in Asia called Miscanthus. And there's lots of interesting things about Miscanthus as a plant. It's evolved completely separately on lots of different islands mm -hmm. around uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, and that means it's genetically distinct in those different places. Now, those different places have got quite different environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. So you've got some miscanthus that's growing at sea level in a salt marsh. You've got some that's growing halfway up a mountain and gets covered in snow. You've got other types of miscanthus that are subject to drought on mm -hmm. a regular basis. So uh, what we basically did was we sent a team of collectors over to Southeast Asia and they just did this magical mystery tour <laughs> A magical mystery tour of botanists, basically, <laughs> looking at all of these different plants going, oh, that's different from the one just down the road. Yeah. Uh, let's take a sample of this. Uh, and that's all That's all sort of quite controlled in terms of legislation. Um, uh, so... When was this happening, sorry? So this was in the early 2000s. Okay, so recent. Yes. So basically collected several hundred different types of miscanthus, mm -hmm. knew what environmental conditions they were grown in, um, knew who owned the site, which is quite important in later years because if you then develop uh, a variety that came from that parent plant, then uh, money goes back to the, the, the place oh, really? that that plant was. Yeah, it's part of, you so know... royalties. Yeah, royalties go to the, the you know, it, it's like, you know, you can't sort of rape a country for its minerals and, mm. and you can't, you know, you can't just take somebody's genetic, take, take the genetic diversity of a country and exploit it for your own purposes without paying royalties. Oh. So so we know the ultimate parents or mm -hmm. grandparent, great, 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 great grandparent of, of every plant that we, every miscanthus variety that we've got so that we can, yeah, we can pay that, pay that back. So all these all these bits of plants arrived in the UK. They obviously got quarantined and inspected um, and cleaned up to make sure there wasn't any soil on them. They get grown up uh, and then in you know in controlled environment. Uh, so uh, again, making sure there's no pests or diseases on them. They get inspected and when it's when it's clear that actually they're completely safe, then the fun begins. Then you can start <laughs> creating your ideal plants. Right, um, and and plant breeding is uh, is a design problem. You you have a list of criteria that you're trying to get, and you basically look for parents with some of those criteria, cross them with each other, and hopefully create your ideal plants. Mm -hmm. And that process is is the same way we've been domesticating plants um, for sort of thousands of years. 
But if you do it in a fairly scientifically controlled way, you can hopefully sort of squish that domestication process yeah. into a you know twenty year time frame. And so, what was your interest in the miscanthus? So, miscanthus is uh, an interesting crop because it's uh, well, it's, it does C four photosynthesis, which okay. is a particularly efficient sort of photosynthesis that plants in hot climates do, which mm-hmm. means they're very uh, water use efficient. Okay, um, but despite the fact that it sort of has got this hot country property to it, it actually grows quite well in cool climates as well. Uh-huh. The uh, I suppose the really important thing about miscanthus is that it's a perennial. Right. Okay? So uh, it dies back to uh, to the rhizome each year, so it has these right underground rhizomes, um, so you can harvest it. Uh, so you basically chop it down to ground level, take the plant away, and then it just springs up again from the rhizome in the spring, mm-hmm. grows to two or three metres tall, and then you cut it down again. And you can carry on like that for 20 years. Perennials are good for two reasons. Firstly, uh, they require less fertiliser and less herbicide because they've got the all of the nutrients are there in the plant root. Uh, wait, and so the plant takes off very quickly in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically just outcompetes. Uh, the second reason perenniality is good is because you don't stop, you don't plough up your soil uh-huh. every year. And in terms of soil carbon, you know, arable is disastrous right. because you are constantly ploughing and constantly releasing CO two back into the atmosphere. Yes, and it's reducing the fertility of the soil as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And you you have to be adding that fertility back. So. Uh, we, you know, if you are developing a biomass crop, so, you know, the original intention was miscan- with miscanthus was to develop a bioenergy crop for, mm-hmm. for UK and Northern Europe. It needs to be perennial. Uh, it needs to grow on land that isn't suitable for food production. Yeah. Um, and it needs to have fairly low input requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, we're back with the first generation biofuels where we're basically, you know, burning burning food. Yes. And, and we, we can't do that mm-hmm. in the future. Um, so miscanthus kind of fits those requirements. And um, the trick then is to breed varieties that are suitable for uh, varieties of wide variety of conditions and maintain some diversity between different um uh, you know, different varieties so that you you know so you could have one that was slightly more frost tolerant or mm-hmm. you could have one that you could take an autumn harvest from instead of a february march harvest from and presumably you can also uh think about you know changing climate so ones that are going to be future proofed in terms of you know drought or yes absolutely uh, i mean it's a pretty deep rooted plant as a perennial so it's it's moderately drought tolerant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does, uh, you know, last summer it was definitely a lot shorter yeah. than it would have been in the wetter summer. Um, that's that is what you'd that is what you'd expect. Yeah. Um, so you're actually growing this. Yeah. So we grow. Um, we do a lot of trials on miscanthus because we're trying to create this ideal variety. Yeah. And then for, when, for building or for so largely for bioenergy at mm-hmm. the moment so it's mostly burnt in straw fired power stations yeah so in the uk about 
uh, probably by the end of this year, there'll be about a million tonnes a year of straw burnt in straw-fired power stations right. for electricity and heat. Uh, and miscanthus is going into into those power stations. Is that currently you know, wheat and barley? Or is it it's, just... it's it's mostly it's almost all wheat at the moment. Barley right. straw is uh, more valuable because you can feed it to animals. Okay. Um, so most of the straw going into those power stations is wheat. Okay. Um, but um, that that could be substituted with miscanthus. It could be substituted forward. with miscanthus going forwards. Yeah, or I mean partially substituted. Mm-hmm. Um, the other um, people are also interested in anaerobic digestion mm-hmm. for generation of methane. Um, so people are interested in AD of miscanthus. Uh, my personal interest is in its use as a building material. So it's uh, it's quite striking how um, much more woody it is as mm. a straw compared to wheat or barley. Uh, it's got a higher lignin content, which is a characteristic of wood. Um, and it's... You know, intuitively, it feels like it should be a material that's that's quite tough. You know, mm. this is a plant that's evolved to grow to three meters high, right? Each so you, year, so there's some and, strength in and not fall over. Yeah, so mm. there's got some significant strength in that. Whereas wheat and we we've kind of gone the opposite way. You know, native wheats, you know, used to have six foot high stems that were really really spindly, and and actually that that caused the plant to fall over. So wheat right. stems got shorter and shorter and shorter over the years. Um, so we've got a good reason to expect that miscanthus is uh, more resistant to, to breakdown than wheat. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in your biodegradable building material from not biodegrading, then <laughs> then miscanthus seems like a good bet. Nice. Um, and so how, how has that progressed? Have you... How- what, what trials and, and... So uh, we've built the world's first miscanthus power house. Right. Just down the road in Abukagir. Um And that just... Well, it's really boring, actually. It just looks like any other straw bow house. It's nothing... You know, there's nothing particularly sort of innovative in terms of... I mean, it's, it's bales of straw. Yeah. Um, it just happens to be bales of a particular type of straw, which, if it gets wet, is less likely to rot. Great. Um, so, uh, interested in using different. So, I mean, so that's about as far as it's got with miscanthus mm-hmm. baling. Um, quite interested in doing a more detailed experiments on degradability of straw types, sure. specifically as it applies to straw bale buildings. So. Um, burying straw in wet bales of straw and then taking the taking it out and measuring it how broken down it is right over time um the i suppose the other big chunks of work i'm doing involve uh adding um plant material into plasters mm-hmm. so to create thermally insulating plasters right um, so if you have, I mean, this is mostly for retrofit. Yeah. Um, so that damp patch behind the kitchen cupboard, um, is get that gets mold on it, mm-hmm. gets mold on it because it has water condensing on the surface. And the reason it has moisture condensing on the surface is because it's cold. So you've, you know, you used to have a cold drafty house and then you double glaze your windows and that's great because you can, 
you don't have condensation on your windows now. You mm. can see out of your windows. But where does all that water condense? It, it condenses on the coldest spot. And right. that's that patch behind the kitchen cupboard. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you can plaster that patch behind the kitchen cupboard with a, an insulating plaster, then the surface temperature of that patch of wall is higher and you don't get any condensation so on no it. no longer the... And it's no longer the mouldy spot. Uh-huh. Now, clearly, you need to ventilate your building properly to remove uh, internally generated moisture. Sure. Yeah, because um, it's, it's people cooking, breathing, showering. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so what sort of materials are you using for that? We're sat in front of a... a We're nice sat sample. in front of a uh, an unlabeled sample. So that's uh, <laughs> that could be oilseed rape, it could be miscanthus, it could be hemp, uh, reed canary grass we've looked at. Um, some people have got a bit of an interest in flax. Uh, we've got oats. Um, I think the, the thing for me with plant-based building materials is that we we need to work out what function it performs mm-hmm. in any given environment. So if you're creating an insulation material, what you're trying to do is trap air. Yeah. Um, that's, that's trap not... Trap air within the... You know, you're creating insulation by trapping air yes. rather than being airtight. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So within within the material. Now that might be in the gaps between different chunks of the material, or it might be within the plant material itself. So mm. you're, but you're trying to create some kind of aero bar, sort of honeycomb yeah. arrangement. Uh, and it may not matter particularly what species of plant you use to to do that. Um, there will be other applications where it matters much more what species of, of plant you use, or there might be other properties that you want that insulation material to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, lots of my colleagues are big fans of particular plants. They've spent, you know, they've spent their entire careers looking at one particular plant. Big fans of, but they're not optimistic about them. Um, they well, well, they but... have a scientific fascination <laughs> in a particular right. plant, and they've and they've been in an environment that's allowed them to follow that for yeah. for twenty odd years. Personally, I'm not that fussed. Mm-hmm. I just want people to use the most appropriate plant. Yeah, for the end purpose. Nice. And what was um, you showed me a stick of something earlier that was uh, looked to me like a stick containing expanded uh, foam. Insulation. Yeah. So um, that was uh, oilseed rape. So um, that's an interesting one because it's got this, as you say, it's got this very very foamy pith mm. in the middle, uh, and as you say, it just looks like polystyrene. Oh, hello, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Um, so it, it looks like it should be a, a brilliant insulation material. Uh, why do people use hemp in hemp line? Why do they? Exactly. Why do, why do they? they? I mean, I think it's really interesting in the natural buildings materials industry that people will take what they're given mm. and that they want uh, co-products. Yeah. So hemp shiv is just left over from hemp fiber production yeah yeah and wheat straw is left after you know the the wheat for flour and that's okay and you you could use the same argument for oilseed rape Mm -hmm. um that that straw is available um but i guess i'm sort of interested in whether we should be breeding plants as 
building materials. So growing well. your your insulation in a field. Uh, Absolutely. In the yeah, same way that as you the product grow itself. your food or your fiber or your pharmaceutical, you could grow your building material. So you're, I mean, you're proposing quite a, a change in, that's quite a, a revolutionary uh, thing, I'd say. Um, in a way, I suppose... But, I mean, we grow plants for different purposes, mm. as it is. And we grow timber as a building product. Yeah. As, um, but timber, not so different to growing a grass. It's Yeah. 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 So, uh, I mean, I think the idea of co- using co-products and wastes is interesting. Um, and I really hope people stop referring to straw as a waste product. Because mm. it, it clearly isn't a waste product. It's a, but it's especially kind of, if it's being burnt and yes yes and that's uh you know that's an interesting part of the environmental equation is if you don't use a material Mm. or you do use material you know what would happen to it otherwise and is that other use of it better or worse in environmental terms than the use you would be putting that material to so you're you're not going to build a a wall out of a precious metal Mm for example, because uh, that precious metal is better used for something else. Sure. So you're saying as straw's value goes up as a, a heating source or as a, you know, actually but by taking it as a renewable heating source, uh, by taking it and putting it in a building is actually not its Possibly use. not the best use for it. Well, I mean, it depends what else you would be burning to use as your heating source, doesn't it? Yes, um, so that's the sort of the consequential part of the equation. Right. So I mean, personally, I do think, uh, you know, using building, using straws as building materials is, is a good use for them. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine it ever happening at a scale where it would impact on straw availability for other purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the downside of straw is that people are taking what they're given as opposed to being discerning customers. Um, And I think there's probably some balance to strike there in terms of um, having having straw that is, uh, well, if you're going for bales, then specifically baled for building to a particular quality and standard. Uh, I'm kind of interested in the whole prefab thing uh, yeah. because obviously as, as soon as you stop using your bale as your unit size, then you can do all sorts of interesting things, mm. uh, chopping it to different uh, fiber lengths and uh, making different shape wall panels and that sort of thing. And that bypasses as well the the how we're, we're currently not we're tending away from bailing into the small usable bales that are currently used by the self-building community. And- yes. So so as you say, people do, there are far fewer small bales available. Most people are now bailing large pestons. Um, and having done some bailing myself, you can absolutely see why. <laughs> um, by the time you've carried a few small bales across a field, mm-hmm. uh, the amount of handling involved is enormous. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not an effective way of clearing a field of, uh, straw before you um, before you put the next crop in. Yeah. Um, so where do you? What's the question? Where I mean, you've already sort of said where you you see the future. Is is there an answer to that question that we haven't just spoken about? 
I think the the future for me is a well the the sort of the the naught to five year future for me is conversations between the construction industry and plant breeders about mm-hmm. what is the design target. Yep. And if we, as plant breeders, uh, if we have a design target, then, you know, it may well be that there is already a plant available with the particular properties that you're looking for. Sure. Uh, it might be that some plant breeding would help to give it a bit of a tweak, but there may be something off the shelf mm-hmm. that's, that's ideal for the purpose. Um, so I think even having those conversations about what the design target is, is, is quite a major step. Yeah. Further, and I'm not just talking about the natural buildings materials industry here. I'm talking about the construction industry overall because they are going to be the big volume mm. demand. Uh, I think in the longer term, uh, what might come out of some of those conversations is that farmers are farming land specifically to grow building materials, whatever those plants might be. So I'll I'll come back to you uh, with a list of my dream bale then. And yeah, your dream your dream straw properties, and that's uh, it's quite interesting when you have conversations with people about what their what their dream material is. Yeah, um, because straw bale builders seem quite short termist. They're very interested in how the bale how the bale is for them mm. whilst they're building with it. Um, they're less interested in what it might be like for the for the householder, right? Which is a bit of a shame, I think. Um, yeah, it's certainly interesting. Uh, we've we've got a build coming up this summer, and we've got well, there's three different suppliers that we're we're talking to for for straw, uh, and I've never gone to them and asked what straw, what wheat is it? Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to having that conversation and I'll come back yeah, to yeah, you. Yeah, that's and ask it. They her. look totally blank. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because it's always been so far about density and about, uh, well, density, density and, and moisture. Yeah. And do you actually monitor the moisture content? Do you uh, have a probe that you jam into bales? We, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's great because a lot of straw bale builders don't. And um, I think it's quite... Risky. Yeah. You you want to know that when the bales go into the walls, they're dry. Mm -hmm. And if they get wet at a later date, yeah, this is just, this is just insuring yourself against risk, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, If they're wet at a later date and there is not an obvious construction defect, then yeah, that was a block gutter. That's not your, you know, not your problem. Um, But most raw bale builders don't measure the moisture content of bales. Um, uh, I think the density one's interesting because I suspect what you mean when you say density is won't fall apart when I'm handling it. Yeah, largely, and and will be a plasterable surface. Yes, um, so so that's a different property, isn't mm. it? So the plasterable surface is about how smooth it is. Uh, I mean, a soft bale is a nightmare to plaster. So yes. it's actually the, the pushing back. Yes. Uh, so. Yes, that's true. I guess I was thinking in terms of how easy it was to strip the surface to make it completely right. flat. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think the density one is interesting because you need your builder, your your unit of building not to fall apart when you move it around. The ideal insulation, you know, the ideal density for insulation is not going to be the same mm. as the ideal density for you picking it up by the strings and yeah. moving it about. You wouldn't pick it up by the strings. Come on. Give it a big hug. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That's... Strawberry building, uh, rule number one. <laughs> yes, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Yes. After you've tested its uh, moisture. Always hug your bale. <laughs> well, Judith, thank you so much for uh, talking to us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, well, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode. That was great. That's a super geeky episode. That is, uh, there maybe should have been a, a geeky warning on the... Uh, the no, people need to get into it. <laughs> so, yeah, brilliant. I really enjoyed that. Um, some really, really interesting points. Uh, loads of really interesting uh, takes. And I, I suppose from a, a builder's perspective, um, all of the kind of the things that had Judith scratching her head about our world um, yeah. uh, is very, really interesting to kind of hear that and take that on board and uh, yeah, can make, take those questions for ourselves, I think. Mm. Well, um, how, how do you feel about tapes? Tapes? Well, I think I need to go on a passive house design course, <laughs> which we've been talking about for the last three years. Um, know your enemy was our approach. I don't, to the our past. enemies are strong. No, but that's that was our old way of thinking, and I think that I think that the, the weakness potentially that uh, that I'm feeling is that I don't I don't know enough about it to have a correct opinion, mm. uh, and that a lot of my prior thinking was based on the assumptions that were spoken about. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I don't have a good building science answer. Yeah. For them, and I'd like to have one. I think um, what I realised was that uh, I've been carrying those assumptions with me for a long time. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it was incredibly beneficial for me to just be, be like, completely challenged on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, it is, it is really good because we want to be 
pushing this forward. We want to be building the best things we can, mm. making the best choices that we can. And we have a duty of care to do that for our clients and uh, for and the, the industry. World. For the world. Indeed. Uh, and it's interesting and it's exciting. I, you know, we we are effectively engineers in some small way. Uh, and I, I'm really interested in the whys of things. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you, you like me, are a, a total geek, yes. and getting into these these little yeah, like what's the best? Yeah, and it's really satisfying to look at to investigate a very tiny detail, mm. and then to kind of you know maybe improve on it a little bit as time goes on. But to have you know a stock kind of set of tools that we've accumulated, we all have our favourite practical tools that we like using our favorite level or our favorite pencil or anything like that and it's no different when it comes to building design i think and i think that may be where we as an industry have been falling down is that we've held on to uh, older details as stock favorites and mm. not really explored new ones yeah so i feel like this is a great opportunity with the work that judith's doing and no doubt other people mm. um in different areas so what's your when we go back to see Judith next? Yeah. What what's our shopping list for uh the plant she should grow us? Well, I think well, knowing the, what yeah. to ask is the first one. Mm. What what are the properties that's the conversation, isn't it? Is what what are the properties that we're looking for uh in it? Because it's it's got to be something between the a high insulative value, uh a resistance to uh biodegrading, uh yeah, sort of bug uh, and yeah, uh, it wants to be all of those things. So it's got to the, the kind of the performance of the material as a stable material over time hmm. is really important, as well as being as thermally efficient as possible. But then I'm also really interested in how it's got to us, like the perennial aspect. I think is really fascinating. I mean, I think that uh, in my mind, that's sort of a given that the only, if we're talking about the next generation the dream of yeah of natural insulators then it's got to be perennial yes yeah i think it'll be really interesting to look at um regional variations and how that mm. how that works because there is a lot of variation just in the uk um but then if you take that across wider europe and then factor in changes as you spoke about with climate change um you know i think it's I want to have. I want to feel like we've got uh, a, say, a variety of a grass that uh, there are different versions of it that will grow differently in different situations. So that we've got a one side, you know, something that's going to fit lots of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. Uh, just slightly tangentially, a uh, quick podcast recommendation is uh, the Nori N O R I mm. podcast. There's an episode with uh, Chris Magwood of Endeavor Center and uh, Jacob Devaruskin. I've just realised I've never said his name out loud before. <laughs> uh, sorry, Jacob, if I've got your name wrong. Yeah, they did a fascinating uh, episode where they just chatted about. Well, it was about how to make car uh, homes that sequester carbon it's a it's a great podcast if you are wanting to listen to that um any other thoughts from um, sorry i totally tangentialized no that's great um the wheat varieties thing i thought that was really fascinating because mm. uh i you know i i love my tree classification i love being able to look at 
things and know what they are. Uh, and it had never occurred to me until she asked that embarrassing question at the Big Straw Bell Gathering. Um, what wheat varieties are we using? Mm. And the, the silence throughout. And I was like, that's really funny because it's... I think that I certainly had just appreciated it as it's just one thing. Straw is one thing. That's one plant. And it obviously isn't. Uh, and it's obvious in hindsight that there are going to be many different properties to that and that it does matter. So, uh, yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. I'm looking forward to finding out from uh, our supplier for this build what that is and mm. maybe feedback to Judith and find out what we can expect the properties of that to be because that's... Uh, yeah, wow. I just I see in my future some really geeky wheat top trumps, <laughs> uh, uh, which makes me very happy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, at the big strawberry gathering, I said to Judith, like, I looked her in the eye, and I said, <laughs> "I am going to find out what wheat we just used." Yeah. And went away and asked the farmer, and got nothing back. <laughs> Uh, I really did enjoy the the air tightness discussion mm. um, and the the kind of the differences that that kind of philosophical difference that she spoke about. I thought was really really interesting because it's possible, of course, to have both of those things. Uh, but I think it's important to have that distinction to say um, uh, I don't like this because of the ethical considerations of the petrochemical industry. Yeah, but uh, I'm not going to use a false scientific claim to justify it. Mm. Um, so I definitely want to look into that more. And uh, I come up with some really sexy details of uh, sealing around our plaster and everything and making the best use of how our clay plasters and how our wonderful materials that do respond so well for an internal kind of happy atmosphere in your home, uh, how to best make the use of that whilst stopping the devilish moisture <laughs> finding yeah. its way to the spores in the walls. So, uh, yeah, that was that was a good bit. I like that. That, that was good. Yeah, I yeah, I think like you, it feels really good to be called out mm. um, on stuff uh, because that's for me at that level. I feel like that's um, that's where growth happens in the you know in the way that we can build. Uh, so I'm, I'm really pleased to have those little bits pointed out. So nice. opportunity to learn more things. Did you make any other notes? Um, prefab stuff. We've been talking about doing prefab things for ages, and I think that, uh, yeah, it's just given me a renewed excitement to investigate that, mm. given the, the opening up the kind of material science side of things. Uh yeah, rather than just thinking of things in terms of bales, let's think about them in a holistic way in terms of being able to clear a field quickly and then deliver a massive Heston to our workshop where we can pull it apart and use the best bit in the best way to make the best panels. Mm. Sounds good. Sounds like a great winter project. Free ourselves from the bale dimension. <laughs> the dominant paradigm of the bales. <laughs> right, that's it. It's... It's late, and yes, I'm sure the the good people have had enough of us. Podcast land, yes. Uh, nice. Well, thanks for your input today. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the next four months of building. Yes, and uh, obviously that means the next four months of joint. 
podcasting. Absolutely. Yeah. And so in the meantime, if people have got any suggestions, we're going to look to start stacking up some more recordings towards the end of the year. So uh, any any firm favourites, do drop us a line and let us know. And thanks for the comments you've uh, been putting forward so far. It's very encouraging to know people are listening and enjoying. Yeah. Oh, I had just the most glorious email the other day. Just Oh, yes, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that was a very lovely pat on the back. Yeah. Well just done. Really nice. Um, thanks. Um, good. All right. Well, until next time. Um, enjoy. Yeah. Be excellent to each other. Oh, good sign off. You got a catchphrase <laughs> already. Your first one. Uh, you stole it. Stole it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. See you. Bye. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.